You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson, Secretary for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses and Ace Copy Editor. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Jeremy. Thank you. Today is August 13th, and this is episode 238 of Lighthearted. In a few minutes, we'll listen to a conversation about an organization that is caring for two historic lighthouses in Wisconsin. So we are about halfway through the summer. How's it going, Cindy? So far, so good, especially now that it's gotten a lot less humid. It's really been pleasant outside. I still haven't really done anything summery, so I I think I need to get on that. Mm -hmm. Some swimming, mini golf, uh, visiting some lighthouses, of course. Yeah, and sadly, (laughs) we haven't been able to visit our favorite lighthouse, or at least not get right up to it because of that walkway still not being rebuilt, which probably isn't going to happen this, this season, year no hopefully we'll be doing tours of portsmouth harbor lighthouse next season but right. uh you and i uh are and our friend michelle and uh possibly some uh, some dancing kids as well <laughs> i don't want to say too much to give it away but we're going to be there this saturday uh dancing to meet me at the lighthouse for the u.s lighthouse society dance contest yeah we so are that's going to be fun it, it'll be a lot of fun hope you've been practicing your steps well, not really, but I think I'm about as ready as I'll ever be. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it'll yeah. be fun regardless. That's exactly how I feel about it. That's the spirit. So uh, just a quick reminder that uh, the dance contest, the deadline for submissions, video submissions, uh, the deadline is August 14th. And there is information if you go to the front page of the Society website, uslhs.org, under What's New. There's a link there to all the information about the dance contest. And we're still Trying to get as many people as possible around the country at Lighthouses to join in on this fun event. Mm -hmm. So uh, we'll wait and see what happens, but uh, hopefully soon we'll get a lot of submissions. So I mentioned your copy editing in the introduction. Mm -hmm. You and I are getting into the home stretch of publishing a new book for the U.S. Lighthouse Society. We are. I think we make a pretty good team. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) I agree. Uh, and uh, we're, yeah, we're definitely uh, almost done with it. The uh, book is by my good friend, retired Coast Guard Admiral Dan May, who's had a long career as an ocean engineer for the Coast Guard. The book is his memoirs of uh, his many lighthouse projects he's worked on over the years, including the move of Block Island Southeast Lighthouse in Rhode Island and erosion control at Montauk Lighthouse. There are a lot of stories in the book that will be of interest to lighthouse buffs. I expect it to be available in around a month or so. Uh, we can't put a date on it yet, but it'll be it'll be pretty soon. Watch for an announcement. So, Cindy, uh, we should probably introduce today's guest. Uh, please help me out. Sure, Jeremy. Port Demore, from the French meaning Door of the Dead, is a strait that connects Lake Michigan to Green Bay, Wisconsin. At its narrowest point between Plum Island and the Door Peninsula, the passage is about one and a third miles across. A lighthouse was established on Plum Island in 1849, but it was determined to be too far west to aid shipping. It was replaced by a lighthouse and fog signal on Pilot Island, less than two miles to the southeast. The station's fog bell was soon upgraded to a powerful horn. It was still difficult for mariners to determine the exact route to enter the Port de Mar passage, so in 1897 a pair of range lights was established on Plum Island. The lighthouse tower that served as the front range was replaced by a modern steel tower in 1964, but the rear range lighthouse remains. 
It's a 65-foot tall cast iron skeletal type tower with a central cylinder. Plum and Pilot Islands were made part of the Green Bay National Wildlife Refuge in 2007, and management of the lighthouses went to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Friends of Plum and Pilot Islands was formed to work with Fish and Wildlife for the preservation of the historic properties. The Friends have completed a number of restoration projects. Mary Beth Vollmer is the president of Friends of Plum and Pilot Islands. I had the pleasure of speaking with her recently. Let's listen to that conversation now. I'm speaking today with Mary Beth Vollmer, who is the president of Friends of Plum and Pilot Islands in Wisconsin. Thank you so much for being with me today, Mary Beth. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Obviously, we're going to talk about the lighthouses, but could you tell me a little bit about your background and how you came to be the president of Friends of Plum and Pilot Islands? Just pretty much being at the right place at the right time. I had gone to Door County, which is in northern part of Wisconsin, with some friends, and we did a little girl trip, and we saw these islands, and we're very intrigued by them. So my friend did some research, and she said, oh, they're starting a friends group. And we should be part of it. No idea what a friends group was all about, but we joined it, got to meet some of the wonderful people that were involved with the friends group. And the president was asking for someone to write their newsletter. And I said, well, I can help you out until you find someone that knows what they're doing. And I wrote it for 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) Funny how that happens. (laughs) Yes, yes. And in doing that, I learned a lot about the islands and about lighthouses in general. Mm -hmm. And when uh, the opportunity presented itself to become president, then I said, well, yeah, I am interested in it. And so now I've been president for the last three years and I re-upped my my, uh, term for another three years. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. I'm just wondering, would you say that before you got involved with the the group, were you uh, were lighthouses kind of on your radar? Were you a lighthouse buff at all? Or have you become one since uh, you've gotten involved? Uh, A little of both? A little little of both. Yes, yes. Uh, My father would often take us to area lighthouses. Um, I I live near the Milwaukee area, so we would see some of the lighthouses around Milwaukee and then up the um, Lake Michigan coast. But uh, yeah, getting involved in the friends group in the organization has just, um, it set a trigger. So now my husband and I, wherever we're visiting, we try and find some lighthouse, whether it be in the States or when we went to Germany, we were mm-hmm. man- we managed to find one. Yeah, yeah. There's great ones in Europe too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, easy to catch the lighthouse bug. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So uh, moving on to the local history there, the there's a strait there uh, that uh, is called Port de Moore, more or less. I'm not quite sure how you, well, not Port de Moore or less. <laughs> I didn't say that quite right. But Port de Moore, this name of the strait. And uh, I think that may be approximately how local people pronounce it. But how did the strait get that particular name? Well, Port de Moore is a French word that translates loosely to death's door. Mm-hmm. And where the lighthouses are is around by this death store. So we have two islands that the Friends of Plum and Pilot Islands support. One is Plum Island, the other Pilot. So Plum Island is smack dab in the middle of the mainland and another larger inhabited island, Washington Island. And that's where Death's Door comes through is from the mainland to Plum Island. Mm-hmm. So where this island is located to the west is the Bay of Green Bay. 
then the other side is Lake Michigan. So we've got some warm water and we've got then the cold water of Lake Michigan and it's coming together. Plus we're also located on the Niagara Escarpment. So when the winds come down from the cliffs, then that makes it all that much more difficult. Nurse have said that the current can change in a matter of minutes. So, you know, along with having the cliffs from the Niagara Escarpment, we've got the Silurian Reef that came through there. So the area is quite treacherous and the depth of the water can change from being 100 feet deep to being four feet deep. So that was why many um, ships crashed or wrecked upon mm -hmm. the shoals that are not seen easily mm -hmm. in earlier days before they had technology as they do today. Folklore tells us that uh, the Potawatomi and the Winnebago Indians were having a conflict. And as they were coming to meet, a storm came up and they lost hundreds of men in their canoes had capsized. And so that was you know, a great burial site of their, their leaders. So people then avoided that area. And they told the story then to the French explorers and the French explorers gave it the name Port de Moore. And today we call it Death Store. Yeah, well, it's a very dramatic name, that's for sure. Yes, and uh, yes. even though the name may have come earlier, it, it uh, kind of fits, you know, it certainly conjures images of uh, shipwrecks and things like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, speaking of that, you've kind of maybe answered it to some degree already, but why were lighthouses so important? Why did they need to uh, uh, build lighthouses in the Port yeah, de Moore? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it was because of the treacherous waters mm -hmm. and trying to keep the ships into the shipping canal so that they could have a safe passage. So if you think of Wisconsin, you know, it's like, like this mitten. And at the very top of your thumb, that's where Plum Island is. And the strait that we would go through, Death Shore. Because of the treacherous waters, then it was decided to put a canal in so that these ships could come through the canal in much more of a safer pattern. There was a canal um, tax or a cost, and some still decided to avoid that canal and come through Death Store. So the lighthouses were put up so that they could then arrange where they were coming through into the shipping canal. Plum Island has a set of range lights, and Pilot Island has a regular Great Lakes style light. Both of these lights are continue to be active aids to navigation. So those are the, the main reasons why mm -hmm. the lights were put out there. Sure. If we could uh, spend maybe a little bit more time on the history of the places, uh, I imagine, you know, with any of these light stations that are in operation for any length of time, you've got some interesting human interest type stories. And I'm wondering if there's anything particular that kind of stands out for you related to the stories of Lighthouse keepers, their families on either Plum Island and or Pilot Island? What was surprising to me when I started writing the newsletter is there is no, not a lot of written books on those families on Plum Island or Pilot Island. Much of it that I found was by going through the newspapers of people that would come to visit and people that would be transferred from one island to the next uh, throughout the Great Lakes region. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are some certain stories of, um, there was a man whose name was Robert Noble, and he was crossing over to, to propose to his girlfriend, and he found out that she was already going to be betrothed. So he then came back, went to come back 
And this was during the winter. A storm came up and he uh, ended up having to stay out on Plum Island to wait out the storm. He remembered that there was the ruins of the second lighthouse in York County on Plum Island. And he thought he would go into that area. And he uh, went to start a fire in what was left of the chimney. And he started to get warm and everything was fine. But then what the fire did is it it um, melted all the snow and he got cold again. He tried to use his revolver into his coat to try and start another fire, but he couldn't. So he decided, well, either I'm going to uh, perish here or I'm going to live. So he got back into his little boat and he went back to the island, to Washington Island, and met up with his friends. And he was just encased in ice and hadn't, after having not slept for three days, he just kind of passed out there. His friends thought that they needed to get him thawed. And there was a, a great chemical that had just been started, had just been released and it was called kerosene. Mm. So they dipped his hands in buckets of kerosene to try and get them thawed out, which was not probably a good thing. When he awakened and he found out what they had done and they realized what they had done, this was before they could call out a surgeon or anyone to come and treat him. He was there until April and they ended up having to take his his hands and I think his, his legs too. But this man was just a strong, strong person. And with prosthetics, he continued to work and became one of the first men to be ferrying people um, across the lakes. And uh, so that's our our big hero story. Oh, yeah. Later years, there's stories of, uh, you know, the men were stationed at Plum Island until the ice. if, if, If it was iced over, they could go back home. But if the ice... If it was not iced over, then they would stay for the entire year. Mm-hmm. And being away from your family for that long is rather difficult. So the government then offered them and uh, that they could build these small little, we call them surfman cottages. They were like 12 by 12 size. Uh, they had to be able to be portable because you can't be you know, putting a, a home on a government land. Uh, so they did. And their families then came and spent the summer with them. So, you know, imagine young kids just being able to run this island that was 325 acres of woods. And um, on one side of the the north side of the island is where the lifesavers lived. And on the other side of the island is where the lighthouse keepers lived. So they could then have friends back and forth. Uh, Women came, they had babies there, Mm -hmm. which I thought was just remarkable, but they could call across to the inhabited island, Washington Island, and ask to bring the doctor over to assist them. They would wash their clothes in the lake. They would hang them out on the line, you know, just like our parents did, but they were on a small little island and they still got to keep, you know, staying with their fathers. Mm -hmm. Well, in those, in the early days, it had to be an extremely isolated place, obviously, especially in the winter. Yeah. But it also make, it makes me wonder, uh, of course, it would be iced over a lot in the winter. Was it possible sometimes to walk long distances on the ice from the islands? Yeah. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. you could. Uh, and the mailman would come from the mainland to Plum Island, to Washington Island, to Pilot Island to deliver the mail mm-hmm. on a, a horse-drawn sleigh. Wow. Uh, there were certain areas that they knew were uh, would be thicker, and they would 
know that that was the trail that they were to to go across. You said something about how you didn't find much in writing about the the human history of these places. Are you thinking of writing anything? <laughs> yes, um, and especially on Pilot Island is only three and a half acres. It's a small little rock spit. And mm-hmm. there were families that lived out on that island throughout the season. It was built in 1858, so 100-plus years later, there is uh, remnants of lilac bushes on the island. Mm-hmm. And I can think of you know a woman that uh, she hears that her husband is stationed there, and she's going to come. And usually the, the wife of the keeper would be the one who would cook for everyone. So mm-hmm. she's going to be coming out and making home on this remote island and wants to be bringing something that helps her remember what home is like. So she brings along a lilac bush and every season then it then blooms. And here it is 100 years later and those are still blooming. Or more than 150 years later. Yes, 150 yeah. years. Yes. Wow, yes. that's incredible. It's a hardy plant. Uh, can you tell me how the uh, Friends of Plum Pl- Friends of Plum and Pilot Islands were was formed in the first place? Plum and Pilot Islands, being federally owned, were transferred to the Bureau of Land Management when the Coast Guard found them as being excess. Okay, and they had certain uniquenesses about them that were very that fit with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's mission to be protecting wildlife. So then there became a transfer to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service runs on a very, very tight budget. And in order to be doing any kind of restoration work, they needed to be partnering with a nonprofit entity. And so they then started the Friends of Plum and Pilot Islands. Mm-hmm. So the Friends group, our main mission is to be working with them. We partner with them to be doing fundraising and advocacy. We bring people to the island. We fundraise for doing the restoration work on the historic maritime structures that are on the island. And we work very, very closely with them to accomplish both of our joint missions. And the islands are within the Green Bay uh, National Wildlife Refuge. Is that correct? Yes, yes. And so Mm -hmm. the Green Bay National Wildlife Refuge is one of the oldest wildlife refuges in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And so I imagine your group works pretty closely with the uh, the refuge. We do. We do. Yeah. Yes. We have a refuge manager that uh, then works side by side with us doing trail maintenance, uh, doing any uh, small types of restoration work and uh, goes out and we do a joint talks about the wildlife and about the preservation that we're doing of the buildings. It, it just makes me think, I always love hearing about cases where wildlife and historical preservation go hand in hand, preserving wildlife and preserving yes. history like this. Yes. And this, They're not mutually exclusive. Sometimes people, I think, maybe see them right. that way, but they're certainly right. not not at all. So it's great to hear. Yeah. As Plum Island has never, never really been inhabited, mm-hmm. you know, other than the keepers and the life-saving service and, and the Coast Guard and the lighthouse keepers, it, it is pretty much a wild island. And in fact, we have a pair of nesting bald eagles that have been on the island for generations. And as we start to get close to their nest, they're very vocal. I'll bet. Any other, what other uh, types of uh, wildlife do you have around there? Do you have other uh, 
birds of prey, that kind of thing as well? Um, we, we have had osprey come by, but mm-hmm. the eagles have scared them off. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do, we're on the international flyway for bird migration. Mm-hmm. So in the spring, then we get hundreds of songbirds that come through mm-hmm. and we'll have an annual birding festival for folks that can be identifying birds by their calls or by the trees that they like. And uh, they'll come out and get their numbers of, oh, I saw this one and that one. Yep. Uh, yeah. we, we also have deer, many, mm-hmm. many deer. And mm-hmm. um, we do have a hunt uh, in the fall of the year. It keeps the numbers down, but they can swim. So they, they come right. from the other islands. Uh, we do have many snakes which keeps the little rodents down. So thank, thankfully. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, we're in an area of Wisconsin where they're not poisonous. So there's no worries there. Yeah. Uh, we also have um, frogs that are the size of your hand because they don't have any natural predators, dragonflies and turtles, you know, anything else that, that could mm-hmm. survive out on that island. Yeah. Yeah. That's quite a, for not a huge island, that's uh quite an array of, of uh, wildlife. So uh, let's uh, get into uh, access, public access a bit to these places. I understand uh, your organization actually offers lighthouse cruises. We do. Some, uh, they stop at Plum Island. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about that? How often do they happen? What part of ye- the year do they happen in? Uh, and uh, maybe a little bit about what's included mm-hmm. in those tours. I can do that. Yes. So uh, Plum Island is open from Memorial Day to Labor Day. And that's mainly because of the waters. Yeah. On the earlier part in the spring of the year, the, the waves are still too rocky that you, you don't, it's difficult for you to be going in on a smaller boat. And on the other side of, the, of, of uh, Labor Day, it gets kind of dicey then too. For the last, say about 10 years, there's a charter service that had brought folks over to Plum Island and let them walk around and and enjoy the wildness of that island. And he had decided to retire and wanted to keep his boat in the Lake Michigan waters. Mm-hmm. So he offered us to buy the boat. And we said, oh, we really don't have that kind of money. But a donor stepped forward and purchased the boat for us. Wow. So, yes. So now we own the boat. And we use the boat to be bringing our volunteers across, but also as a tour boat. And the proceeds then go back into historic preservation. So the boat is available, I, I think, uh, depending on our captain's schedules, pretty much any day of the week. And you can charter the, the entire boat for yourself or for your friends, or you can go on a per passenger rate. And mm-hmm. it then comes out of Washington Island. It's a two-hour tour. Takes you around Plum Island, around Pilot Island. And you get a chance to spot some of the area shipwrecks. There's one shipwreck that is about 100 feet from the shore of Plum Island. And her name is called the Grape Shot. She was an early lumber schooner. And uh, when the water is clear, she's just in about 10 feet of water. You can see her huge centerboard and the parts of her that are are still there and then over by pilot island there are three shipwrecks that had happened within two years 
And as they crashed together and uh, fell into the water, they're kind of like a triangle. Mm. They're in a hundred feet of water, so you can't visibly see them, but you can see them from our side sight sonar on the on the boat. Besides the cruises to Plum Island, currently is there are there other ways for people to visit that island? Or is... yes, yes. Mm-hmm. If uh, if you're courageous enough, you mm-hmm. can cross Death's Door in your kayak. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there are two kayak landing spots, one on the north end and one on the south end. You can bring your own boat, and there is other charter services within the within the Northern Door County area that you can come and explore Plum Island. Mm-hmm. Pilot Island is not open to the public. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the transfer occurred, then the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, found that there were many different types of colonial nesting birds that needed that island so that they could be raising their young. And so that uh, island was deemed as being a bird sanctuary. You can observe it from the shoreline and you can observe many different types of birds from cormorants to pelicans to uh, different types of seagulls. Egrets sometimes come and um, fish off of the shores. So it's a it's a beautiful place. Um, one time we had gone out there and all of a sudden it was very quiet. And that we were wondering, well, why, why could that be? Usually you hear all the cacophony of the, of the birds. And as we continued up the shoreline, we found that there was an eagle that was nesting. Well, not nesting, but sitting up in the trees. And he scared away all of the other birds. Uh-huh. I was very surprised you just said you, you have pelicans. Yes. Yeah, is that a do. new development? I know that, um, I mean, that's to me way, f- way north for pelicans, but I do know that they, uh, and there are pelicans in Minnesota, like along the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. They, I think they, I've heard that they kind of followed the river up up there, um, but I didn't know, realize there were pelicans in Wisconsin. Yes, yes. And they just came within the last three to five years. Ah, okay. uh, they used to be seen quite often and then something happened and they were gone. Hmm. And now they come and uh, they're beautiful to watch, you know, as they're in formation, flying mm-hmm. through the air and as they're landing and taking off. Yeah, it's just a, a very different sight to see. Absolutely. These are white pelicans. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen uh, thousands of them, you know, in areas in uh, Texas. I was in the Gulf Coast in Texas. Oh. just thousands and thousands of white pelicans everywhere uh, mm-hmm. near uh, Corpus Christi. But anyway, wow, that's a surprise to me. Yeah. So you have a, your organization has a number of volunteers, right, who do mm-hmm. various things. Can you tell me a little bit about what the uh, what, what are the activities? What do the volunteers oh, do? Yes, mm-hmm. yes, definitely. Um, so we operate the Friends of Palma Pilot Islands like, like a business, and we've got uh, eight board members, and then we have... Um, 250 members and a probably about 25 that we call volunteer leaders that lead some of these workday schedules. So volunteers can do things um, like trail maintenance, walk the trails, pick up any flotsam that has come ashore, note any trees that have gone down. This is a usually a beginning of the season type of a of a task, and then after a storm making sure that the trails are clear for anyone that wants to be coming and visiting. Painting, the Coast Guard had this motto that uh, if it doesn't move, uh, paint it. I've heard so, white 
wash it too. I think that was earlier in their history. They would say, if it doesn't move, whitewash it. But I think later yeah. it became painted. Yeah, yeah, yeah painting. We uh, keep that all up to date and uh, building things uh, that need that are needed by the refuge, um, like boot brushes, pretty much any kind of a small type of a project that we don't need to have a contractor come out to do. This season, we just finished working on a really great project on the boathouse. We restored the pilasters. So if you think of the boathouse as being much like a garage, very utilitarian, not very pretty. Uh, the government has said, oh, no, we need to be putting some little bit of architecture into it to make it a little bit more appealing. So they crafted these then referred to as pilasters. And the group then in 90 degree weather shrouded because there was lead paint around them in Tyvek suits. They scraped all of the old paint off and they then filled in areas that needed to be and then repainted it. And uh, that was their their contribution for the entire season. So mm -hmm. we, we redid four of those. And if you think uh, of the boathouse is sitting out on a dock, two of the edges were over water. So they had to be building some kind of a structure so that they could still work those through. And I've got the greatest volunteers. They're willing to do just about anything to be mm -hmm. working on uh, this refuge. Wow. Speaking of painting, I understand the... Uh... The Plum Island, the lighthouse there, the rear range light on Plum Island uh, has been painted. Two-part question, is that complete? And was that done by volunteers or was it done by a contractor? Uh, no, it was done by a contractor. That's what I thought. Uh, yes, yes. The rear range light, I don't know how many feet tall that, that she is, but she had seen some weathering. Uh, we were getting water into the tower and uh, rust was starting to poke through in areas. So we did a major fundraising campaign and we raised the over $200,000 that needed to be raised to restore then the top section of their range light. She looks absolutely beautiful, but $200,000 plus is what it, it cost for us to do the mm -hmm. upper section of the tower. And now we are uh, raising funds to be doing the structure. And that is looking to be at about 170000 Dollars and we're about forty thousand dollars short yet, so I probably won't be done this season. Yeah, well, it's not not getting any easier these days to to raise money no, for these projects. No. Not yes. at all. I know. I know from experience. <laughs> and by, according to my notes, that tower is sixty-five feet tall. Does that sound about right? Feet. Thank you. Yes, yeah, that's pretty substantial. It's a lot of yes. painting, and it's uh, of course it's got that central cylinder and the supports, mm -hmm. and everything needs to be painted properly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm sure you have to. And, and it was lead paint applied, so it all had to be abated. Uh-huh. And if you let it go too long, you get a lot of rust on those those structures mm -hmm. as well. You don't get as much rust, I think, in the salt water. I mean, a freshwater area like that as we do near salt water. But I'm sure you do get some rust. Yeah. Yeah. There is there is pretty much rust that is on the structures mm -hmm. that we need to get uh, scraped off and repainted so that it will last another Yeah. 50, 60, 70, however many years. Oh, that that and longer, I, I would hope. But mm -hmm. um, one thing I saw that I thought was really interesting when I was looking up um, things on the internet about you and the, the group is that you founded something called Women in Preservation. What's that all yes. about? Oh, yeah, my labor of love. When I was coming out to volunteer 
during work days on the island, I was noticing I was the only woman that was there. And I, I couldn't understand why, because I enjoyed it immensely. And the men were just so helpful in help in teaching me how to be handling a drill, how to be cutting. And so I started this women in preservation group. And the motto is no one leaves the refuge without dirt under their fingernails and knowledge within their soul. And we would bring women out to the island and they would be mentored by, by men to learn how to be using power tools and we build things. So uh, when you come out to visit Plum Island, then you'll be able to see the visitor's kiosk that we built and you'll be able to sit on all the Leopold benches that we built and scrape your shoes off at the boot brush stands that we built. It's a great, great opportunity. And a lot of women came out of that program feeling very empowered, giving, doing their part for the refuge, but also having that knowledge within their soul. Yeah, everybody wins with that. Mm -hmm. That's that's really fantastic. And I was thinking I should uh, go through a program like that because <laughs> I'm terrible at uh, using power tools or building things or fixing things things or any of that. It's not my, never been my forte. So I could certainly benefit from some training in that. Maybe, uh, maybe one or more of your women could train me if I come out oh, there sometime. Good. Good. Yes. Yeah. A graduate. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's really great. I really commend you on that. Thank you. So we touched on the, the wildlife earlier. I'm wondering if your organization, your volunteers, uh, is there any involvement with the, that aspect of things, kind of the natural environment as well as the, the physical structures? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So um, a couple of years ago, we just on a whim thought we'd, we'd seen so many monarch butterflies throughout the island. And we thought, wouldn't it be interesting to tag them and see if they make it down to Mexico? So we did that. And it was first, it was really funny watching 40, 50 year old women jumping through the air with the nets, <laughs> catching butterflies. But it was something that we learned too. And we uh, talked to the Washington Island School and said, hey, we're, we're doing this. Would you like to bring your kids out and join in with us? Mm -hmm. So they brought their, their students out and they then built an entire curriculum around the monarch butterflies. The kids know... <laughs> so much more than what I do uh, about what generation that they could be. They can even pick up a butterfly and they can find out it. They can look at it and know if it's a male or a female, just unreal. <laughs> uh, and, and they then uh, with this program partnered then with schools down in Mexico, learned about you know, some of the culture, uh, different differences in culture. Mm -hmm. And this last year they added to the program by searching, uh, by looking at these monarch butterflies and seeing if they have this other kind of virus that is also decimating the monarch butterflies. Luckily, none of ours did, but the kids then were exposed to just a different way of looking at the wildlife that is on this island. Another thing, it was a kind, again, kind of a whim. We were looking to see if maybe we had bats on the island. It's a wooded island. So we then... Uh, scheduled an overnighter so on a on a fish and wildlife service refuge you cannot camp but we could be overnight for doing scientific studies so the refuge manager did a crash course on using an echolator and we all waited until night uh, till dusk and we walked out onto the trail with this little antenna and all of a sudden we started hearing beep 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 and in one of the buildings the bats 
were coming, just hundreds of them flying out of the windows. Wow. It was just unreal. <laughs> uh, so we reached out to the Department of Natural Resources and told them about this. In the area where we are, 90% of the bats have been decimated by white nose syndrome. They were so surprised to see all of the bats and that the bats, uh, they, they came other times and they had done the mist nets and they captured them and they looked at them and all of them are healthy bats. And they do two bat counts, one as the bats return from hibernation and then another one after they have popped and they've counted upwards of 750 bats coming out of this building. We have the largest bat maternity ward in the Midwest and maybe in the hmm. country. They have no wow. idea where it is that they might be uh, hibernating, but that area then is a clean area. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, it's great for wildlife enthusiasts and bat enthusiasts. Not so great for historic preservationists. <laughs> you know what bats do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's kind of, you know, both sides. What yeah. we're looking at doing is working with the Department of Natural Resources and building bat condos. Uh -huh. So you'll see a little, you know, little condo and then enticing the bats to move out of that area and, and into uh, much more updated accommodations. <laughs> so it's 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 on the it's on the plan. Sure. We're also working with an a master naturalist and a master gardener to be planting wild uh, wildflowers that the pollinators mm -hmm. like in um, some certain specific areas. So that's something that is going to be happening this season. We're mm -hmm. going to be putting down specific types of seed right before it snows, and then it'll get the winter to be able to get itself into the ground. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to be introducing some of the wildflowers that these pollinators enjoy. When you say pollinators, do you mean insects or we also talk about hummingbirds maybe? Yeah. The butterflies, humming. I've not seen a hummingbird mm -hmm. there yet, but uh, yeah, other kinds of the songbirds, you can consider okay. those as being all pollinators. Pollinators also. The bats that we have in the boathouse are little brown bats. So they're, I don't think that they're considered as being pollinators. I they don't think eat, so. They, they eat, eat insects. Zillions of mosquitoes. Tons of insects, yeah. Yes, yes. That's why I would, love bats, yeah. Yeah, yeah. When we would go out there for doing the bat count uh, at dusk is when the mosquitoes would just be horrendous. And we, um, as soon as the bats started to go out on their feeding frenzy, there were no more mosquitoes. Mm-hmm, mm -hmm. It was great. And it, it, it's great because... Mosquitoes sometimes carry some rather nasty diseases, and these bats then take care of them. Absolutely. So another aspect of uh, the natural environment there would obviously the weather, but also the uh, the lake levels. I know the lake levels on uh, the Great Lakes have been pretty uh, have fluctuated yes. greatly in in recent years. Has that have had an effect on on those islands so far? Oh, or, yes, oh, yes yeah? definitely. Mm -hmm. uh, so. When the water level is high, which it was about three years ago, the ice shoves, as they're moving along, they're like little little uh, baby icebergs. Mm -hmm. And they came and they blasted out the doors of the boathouse, the lower section of the doors, mm -hmm. which is you know great intensity as they were moving. So we have to now raise the money to 
get those fixed. We've gotten the, the doors fixed. So now we need to be finding someone who has the knowledge of how doors were installed in 1939 when the boathouse was put up. That's mm -hmm. becoming a bit more of a, of a challenge. Yes, the, the level has gone down three feet since then. One of the, the, the side benefits of this, which I, I was really surprised when I heard it, is that because of the levels moving and all of the pressure of the lake, the sands have been shifting, which has then been uncovering other shipwrecks hmm. and making uh, the Wisconsin Historical Society is our entity that then identifies shipwrecks. And they have found more in the last three to five years than they have found in a long time because of the shifting of the sands. Interesting. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm sure they get co covered and uncovered uh, over and over yes. again, probably over the years. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so let's just talk a little bit about the Door County Maritime Museum's festivals. Mm -hmm. They have the Lighthouse Festival, uh, I believe, twice a year, right? In they spring do, and fall. And all over the world for these lighthouse festivals to be able to just right. check off the box that they have mm -hmm. seen these lights. Yeah. So do people come to visit Plum Island during those, those Thank festivals? You. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. So uh, we then invite people. Um, it's, it's held over a weekend. And so we have people that come on Saturday and our Fridays, Fridays and Saturdays, or is it Saturdays and Sundays? I can't remember. We have people that come during the lighthouse festival and they uh, get a little tour of Plum Island by trained docents mm -hmm. of the buildings. And then they also get to climb the rear range light and the front range light and hear the little Robert Noble story of the ruins of that second lighthouse in Door County. Mm -hmm. And they're all very excited you know, once they leave. I'm interviewing somebody soon from the Door County Maritime Museum. That'll be ah, featured on the podcast in a few weeks. Good, so good. Looking forward to that. You know, I've only personally seen a little bit of Wisconsin, and I need to to see a lot more. You do. <laughs> so, you do. Come uh, in the fall of the year. Um, it's mm -hmm. absolutely beautiful. The colors are magnificent, and the weather isn't hot and muggy like it is pretty much the other part of the year. So, mm -hmm. yeah, come in the fall. Okay, I'll, I'll definitely keep that in mind. I'm okay. Not going to be this year, but who knows? Maybe next year. Mm -hmm. I, I hope. Um, so another thing I, I saw online is that there's going to be a photography workshop on Plum Island, September yeah. 23rd. Is that something that's a regular thing, or what? What's, no, what's this was the first year that we had tried it, and so we we reached out to a locally well-known photographer and said, "Hey, this is an idea. What would you think?" And he was very excited about it. So we advertised it and um, people would be coming over on our shoreline boat. We can put 16 passengers on. And being the first time we sold out uh, 12 of the seats, not too bad. And the uh, photographer then walked people through how to be getting the you know, perfect lighting and, and things to be photography, for, to be um, taking pictures of nature wise. And he helped guide them through that process. And then provided them with um, some information that they could be taking along with them. So we were very impressed with that. And we had, we advertised for a fall one with the different colors. Within two weeks, we were sold out. Mm. So, yeah, right. we, we hope to continue that. And then maybe next year do more uh, nature, maybe nature painting. I was thinking of doing, having an artist come out and teach us how to be capturing a scene and doing plein air 
mm-hmm. kinds of painting. Yeah, yeah, sounds perfect for that. Uh, some years for fundraising, we do a sunset cruise, mm-hmm. and we take then folks around the islands and get to Plum Island just as the sun is setting, and it's absolutely beautiful with its setting and reflecting on the Lake Michigan waters. It's a sight to be seen. Oh, yeah, sounds great. And then at nighttime, uh, when the the light from the rear range light reflects upon the tree line mm-hmm. and the different colors. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds pretty special. Mm-hmm. So I understand the old Fresnel lens from Plum Island is on display. Well, where's that? Yes. Yes. We were just very uh, disheartened when they said that it had to come out and we tried to convince them, no, no, we'll leave it there, mm-hmm. leave it there. And they said no. And explained some of the reasons why is because of its historical nature uh, so uh, let me let me back up a little bit. The Plum Island and the Pilot Island lights are continue to be uh, active aids to navigation, and the Coast Guard is responsible for making sure that they are operational. Mm-hmm. So when the Coast Guard would come out to replace them, it would be very difficult for them to be getting in and replacing the one that is underneath that is within the Fresnel lens. It would be so much easier and so much more efficient if they just had an airport beacon. So we um, worked with them to be bringing out a specialist who brought the uh, fourth order Fresnel lens out. And then he also restored it. And it's an absolute beautiful, beautiful specimen. And it's in the Door County Maritime Museum's Gills Rock Museum. And it's uh, people come just to see that. It's just mm-hmm. a beautiful work of art. So a, a fourth order Fresnel lens is about Oh, what would you say? Maybe about four to five feet tall. It's closer to three, I think. It's... Three to three to four feet tall. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's um, you get a chance to really see it eye to eye, mm-hmm. and when you look at how old that that technology was to be creating those prisms, and how long that that had lasted in an environment of Wisconsin, uh, it just amazes me. Yeah. Well, I'm glad it was preserved anyway and is on mm-hmm. display. Was it the Lampus Kurt Fosberg by any chance? Yes, involved it in was. That? Yeah, I thought so. Yes. He's from Michigan. I know him. He's a yeah. great, great guy yeah, and does great. a, a yes. amazing job. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, and he documented everything that he did yeah. and very personable. He loves yes. it's one of the great things about working in a volunteer organization is sharing your passion with others and learning from them. And mm-hmm. this man loves what it is that he is doing. Absolutely. You just, uh, you gravitate toward it and learn from him. Yeah. I videoed Kurt while he was working on a lens one time and he had no problem talking about it, what he was doing as he was talking. And not everybody wants to do that, to be bothered while they're they're working, but he was more than happy to do it. Uh, And he's been on the podcast too. I was at the uh, Marquette Maritime Museum and he was there for that. He lives in in that area. So Mm -hmm. yeah, he's, he's fantastic. So uh, obviously there's a lot to talk about. I'm sure there's a lot more we could talk about, but for now I have one final question for you for bonus points. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So I hope you're ready. And that question is what has been your personal favorite thing about your involvement with friends of plum and pilot islands? Oh, that one single thing. It doesn't have to be one single thing. It could be two or three things, but probably stop at no more than three. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I've got a favorite. Mm-hmm. My favorite is working with the volunteers. 
working with the people that, uh, as I said about Kurt too, is sharing the passion that I have for historic preservation and the natural world. Learning from them, I think has made me a better person, uh, more patience. It's heightened my, my thirst for knowledge. When you look at my living room, I have piles of books, of lighthouses, and historic preservation things. And it's just a completely different direction that I never thought that my life would take. But it's all mm. been triggered by the lights. Yeah. I think uh, so many of us uh, feel that way, that the lighthouses are worth preserving. The physical structures oh, yes. are interesting. But it's the people that, that matters. The people, both from in a historic sense, the keepers and families, but also the the volunteers and preservationists of today. Oh, yes. yes, yes, definitely. So Mary Beth Vollmer, I want to thank you again for spending this time with me today. It's been a real pleasure. Hope we can do it again someday, maybe get an update uh, sometime in the future. I wish you the best of luck with the rest of the season. I hope maybe I'll get to get out there and see these places and meet you next, maybe next year. I'm going to make that, I'm going to put that on my, uh, my tentative calendar for next year. But again, thank you so much, Mary Beth. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. And, and thank you. And uh, yeah, the door will be open. You can read more about the Friends of Plum and Pilot Islands at plumandpilot.org. You can get all the information about their lighthouse cruises on the site, and there's also an online store with apparel and souvenirs. I've only seen a little bit of Wisconsin so far, but I hope I can go back and do one of the tours that stops at Plum Island. Looks uh, very beautiful and interesting. Be sure to visit uslhs.org to learn more about everything the U.S. Lighthouse Society offers. And remember that donations and memberships help support this podcast. The USLHS tours next year in Ohio and Northern California still have room, and also the international tour in the Caribbean and one in Denmark and Germany. I may be going on the one to Denmark and Germany next summer, Mm. at least I hope so. So do you have a quote for us, Cindy? I sure do. The historian David McCullough once wrote, quote, History is a guide to navigation in perilous times. History is who we are and why we are the way we are, unquote. Yeah, he was a smart guy, David McCullough. Uh, I was lucky enough to meet him back in the 1990s. I was working at WGBH-TV in Boston. He was very friendly and down-to-earth. So, we will be back next week with a new episode of Lighthearted. Until then, to all our regular listeners and our new ones, thank you so much for listening and keep a good light. Mm-hmm.